Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson, co-host of CBS This Morning. In the East Room of the White House, the beleaguered and battered president was trying to take back his presidency through the force of argument. I have some common goals with the new Republican majority in the Congress. Bill Clinton had fought back from a political hole before on the campaign trail. In 1992, he'd survived a brutal primary in New Hampshire and come in second as the comeback kid. Then in 1992, he defeated an incumbent president. But in April of 1995, Bill Clinton was a deflated man. Republicans had won both houses of Congress in direct action against his presidency in the 1994 elections, where they were a revolt against his health care initiative and the big government liberal democratic plans. It was a revolution in government with the Republican Party and conservatives in the ascendancy. At this press conference in April of 1995, only one national network had chosen to cover the president of the United States, a rarity. When the president speaks, all the networks tune in. But this press conference came while Newt Gingrich and the new Congress were passing a whirlwind collection of bills. They were where the action was at. The action was not at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue. This caused the president during his press conference to assert that he was still a relevant actor in the American system. The Constitution gives me relevance. The power of our ideas gives me relevance. The record we have built up over the last two years and the things we're trying to do to implement it give it relevance. The president is relevant here. It was 22 years after Arthur Schlesinger wrote the imperial presidency, which argued that the executive branch had grown too powerful. Now a president was making the case for his relevance. In the job of the presidency, said the pundits, when you have to assert your relevance, then you don't have it. That is to say, relevance. But the next morning, the Clinton presidency and the country would change radically in a single flash. Our whistle stop today is April 19th, 1995. It's less than 12 hours after that press conference. Terror rocks Oklahoma City. The ceiling fell in and the walls fell in and there was nothing left. Gulf War veteran Timothy McVeigh and his friend Terry Nichols pulled their rental van in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City sometime before 9 in the morning, and detonated the fertilizer bomb contained inside that rental van, killing 168 people. 19 of them were children. More than 600 were wounded in what was the worst terrorist attack in the United States before 9-11. The bombing was a reminder that the presidency is a job that extends beyond the moment. At an instant, a president can be called on to act by his entire country. In an instant, the entire country can turn their heads to the president for guidance. This is why a White House in chaos or with staff problems is a worry, even if in the moment things don't seem to be so dire. A White House in chaos, a president who is not ready, won't be ready for the big unexpected thing that comes to all presidents. In this case, Bill Clinton was asked to answer for tragedy, to speak to a nation and to help people make sense of the madness. Bill Clinton had to, at a moment, play the role of consoler-in-chief and step forward as a national leader to explain and to call the nation to a higher purpose. The bombing in Oklahoma City was an attack on innocent children and defenseless citizens. It was an act of cowardice, And it was 
evil. It was the first time Clinton had been a reassuring figure rather than an unsettling one, wrote Clinton's speechwriter Michael Waldman. According to Don Baer, Bill Clinton's communications director, what the president had been trying to do in the wake of the Republican victories in 1994 and the domination by the Republican Congress at the beginning of 1995 was to present himself as the guardian of common ground in America. This served a dual purpose. It would help the president shed the liberal label that had hurt Democratic candidates in the 1994 elections. Common ground is not liberal ground. But it also sought to put Republicans on the defensive. You could also take it one more stance, which is that the president stands in common ground and pulls people to him into the into a collective space instead of trying to drag them over to one side or another. This was the pitch the president was trying to make at that press conference. But if you're going to make a pitch like that in a press conference, it's going to take a while. The dangers of extremism and overreach were abstract when the president was making his case. In that evening press conference covered only by one network, but after the bombing, it was easier for Bill Clinton to make this case. Timothy McVeigh, the 26-year-old Army veteran, was a radical militia sympathizer. He wanted to kill a large number of U.S. government employees to retaliate for federal government overreach, or what he saw as federal government overreach. The attack came on the second anniversary of the federal raid on the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. That was an action that McVeigh considered an act of tyranny. He also reportedly was avenging the federal role in the Ruby Ridge standoff, where federal agents killed the wife and child of Randy Weaver, who held off federal agents in a tense armed standoff when they came to arrest him on a firearms violation. According to the New York Times, McVeigh was also blaming the passage of the Brady Bill in November of 1993, what Bill Clinton had considered a big success. That Brady Bill mandated a five-day waiting period for the purchase of guns. In the immediate aftermath of the bombing, speculation fell immediately on Islamic radicals. Two years before, in 1993, Islamic radicals had driven an explosive-laden van into the basement of the World Trade Center and detonated it, killing six people. The president told people to resist jumping to any conclusions, specifically resisting jumping to any conclusions about Islamic radicals. In his immediate remarks, the president, in the press room of the White House declared that the federal government, the federal government that had been the target of so much criticism by the militias and the federal government that had been criticized so often by those running for office in 1994, that that federal government was now on the case. I have met with our team, which we assembled to deal with this bombing, and I have determined to take the following steps to assure the strongest response to this situation. It was not always the case that presidents felt it was necessary to respond to national tragedy after the shooting at the University of Texas where Charles Whitman killed 17 and injured 30 from the clock tower at the University of Texas. This is 1966. Lyndon Johnson did not feel as though it was necessary to give a national speech. But there is a tradition of oratory. Michael Waldman, that Clinton speechwriter I quoted earlier, writes in his book, POTUS Speaks, POTUS stands for President of the United States, that there is a certain outline, a certain classic style for the kind of speech that President Clinton knew he had to give. Here's Waldman. Since Pericles spoke in ancient Athens, eulogies have followed a classic form. Honor the dead, 
state why it is appropriate that we do so, take from their deaths a lesson as to how we should live our lives. That last piece is crucial. We'll return to it later. The most famous speeches in response to disaster are FDR's address on the attack of Pearl Harbor. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. And Ronald Reagan's speech to the nation after the Challenger disaster. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd planned to speak to you tonight to report on the State of the Union. But the events of earlier today have led me to change those plans. Today is a day for mourning and remembering. Nancy and I are pained to the core by the tragedy of the shuttle Challenger. We know we share this pain with all of the people of our country. This is truly a national loss. Reagan's speech ends with that famous poetic last few lines written by his speechwriter Peggy Noonan. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. Before Clinton could give the speech, the major speech after the Oklahoma City bombing, there was an event in the White House in the Oval Office. Because 19 children had died in the bombing, the president and the White House staff were looking for ways to address the nation's children. So before heading down to Oklahoma City, the president and his wife held a special broadcast of the weekly radio address in which they spoke to and took questions from children assembled on the Oval Office rug. Good morning. Today, I've been joined by the First Lady and by children of people who work for our federal government because we are especially concerned about how the children of America are reacting to the terrible events in Oklahoma City. Our family has been struggling to make sense of this tragedy, and I know that families all over America have as well. We know that what happened in Oklahoma is very frightening, and we want children to know that it's okay to be frightened by something as bad as this. Your parents understand it. Your teachers understand it. And we're all there for you, and we're working hard to make sure that this makes sense to you and that you can overcome your fears and go on with your lives. After meeting with the children in the Oval Office, the next day, the president flew to Oklahoma City for a service held on the 23rd of April at the Oakland State Fair Arena. It was titled A Time for Healing. And here's a big bulk of the, uh, of the president's remarks. This terrible sin took the lives of our American family, innocent children in that building only because their parents were trying to be good parents as well as good workers. Citizens in the building going about their daily business and many there who served the rest of us, who worked to help the elderly and the disabled, who worked to support our farmers and our veterans, who work to enforce our laws and to protect us. Let us say clearly, they served us well, and we are grateful. 
The speech drew the connection between the vilification of government and the bombing, which gave the audience control. The anger you feel is valid, but you must not allow yourselves to be consumed by it. The hurt you feel must not be allowed to turn into hate, but instead into the search for justice. The loss you feel must not paralyze your own lives. Instead, you must try to pay tribute to your loved ones by continuing to do all the things they left undone, thus ensuring they did not die in vain. So this goes back to Waldman's point about the classic eulogy. Take from their deaths a lesson about how we should live our lives. It was a political claim, of course, and we'll get to that in a minute, but it was also a way to give meaning to this act, meaning for those who were still left alive. If you know the root cause of something, then you can start to manage it and take actions to attack it. That's better than just pure existential dread at an unknown event, say, like the Las Vegas shooting. Explanation, facts, and and a root cause at least give people something that they can rally around. To all my fellow Americans beyond this hall, I say one thing we owe those who have sacrificed is the duty to purge ourselves of the dark forces which gave rise to this evil. Let us teach our children that the God of comfort is also the God of righteousness. Those who trouble their own house will inherit the wind. Justice will prevail. Let us let our own children know that we will stand against the forces of fear. When there is talk of hatred, let us stand up and talk against it. When there is talk of violence, let us stand up and talk against it. In the face of death, let us honor life. As St. Paul admonished us, let us not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Henry Cisneros, who served as Clinton's Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, also argued that Clinton's remarks had a political power in them that went beyond the benefits that accrue to a president when he can successfully speak to the nation's pain, receive what people are in a mood to give, which is anguish, praise, gratitude, whatever emotion it is that they need, they they need a vehicle for releasing it, a catharsis of sorts, which a presidential speech like this gives. But Cisneros saw this political element. And here's how he put it. He said the, the Republicans' fundamental view of the president was this is a pers- person who did not deserve to be president, who is flawed morally. And here he was taking on the moral mantle in a completely sincere and effective way. Cisneros described a more sober person who knew he was dealing with big, ugly forces in the world, the gravitas descended upon him. I'm relying on uh, two books here for this reconstruction of Clinton's Oklahoma City speech and, um, and, and also the presidency. One is by Nigel Hamilton called Bill Clinton Mastering the Presidency. The second book is A Complicated Man, The Life of Bill Clinton is Told by Those Who Know Him. That's where the Cisneros quote comes from. That's by um, Michael Takif. Also, obviously, relying here on... Um, Bill Clinton's own biography of himself called My Life. Okay, back to the matter at hand here. 
What we did not know at the time all of this was going on was that before the bombing, Bill Clinton had called in a political gnome to help revive his flagging presidency and that that gnome would take this tragedy and use it as a political wedge. Dick Morris is the gnome of whom I speak, or I should say Dick Morris is the name of the gnome, which is the gnome name known to all of us. Anyway, Dick Morris was playing behind the scenes. He was an influential Clinton advisor, but not known to all people within the Clinton White House. And he offered a plan for how the president could use this moment to put his critics on the defensive. In a brazenly political memo in which Morris boasts about uh, he but Morris boasts about this memo in his book. The book is entitled Behind the Oval Office, Getting Reelected Against All Odds. In this book, Morris writes permanent possible gain sets up extremist issue versus Republicans. Morris suggested in his book using extremism as an issue against Republicans, not by direct accusations, but via what he called a ricochet theory. The way the ricochet theory would work is that Clinton would, according to Morris, talk about the national concern over extremism and terror. This would irritate the right-wingers, Morris thought, And those right-wingers would demand action and response from their Republican lawmakers. Those lawmakers would attack the president for trying to paint them all with a broad brush, and they would thereby link themselves to the actual extremists. Net effect, Morris concluded, self-inflicted linkage between the party and extremists. It was a brazen and somewhat sickening use of the tragedy to smear an entire party, reminiscent of Newt Gingrich's claim that a woman who drowned her children in a lake was the product of, quote, how sick the society is getting and how much we need to change things. The only way to change is to vote Republican. So the distinction, of course, between Gingrich and what Morris was saying, however brazen, was that it would have gotten no energy at all if lawmakers had not behaved in a way that connected them to the anti-government views that had animated McVeigh. Five days later, After the speech in Oklahoma City, Clinton was deploying the strategy in a more overt way, though, of course, obviously, he had been talking about extremism and and this connection between what had animated McVeigh and the the kind of easy anti-government lingo that was at the center of the Republican campaigns in 1994. Here's what uh, Clinton said on April 24th, as covered by Todd Purdom in the New York Times. President Clinton today, wrote Purdom, denounced promoters of paranoia for spreading hate on the public airwaves and promptly found himself in a confrontation with conservative radio talk show hosts whom he had not named, but who interpreted his remarks as attacks on themselves. After days of measured statements of grief and outrage over Oklahoma City, Mr. Clinton engaged today in a new discussion of the civic and political climate that might have encouraged it. As soon as he finished speaking, senior White House aides became concerned that his remarks would be interpreted as an attack on radio hosts like Rush Limbaugh and rushed to insist that the president had only been urging Americans to protect free speech by speaking out against hatred. Now, this might sound to those of us who who are who know the way these things sometimes work. It might sound like administration doublespeak, which is to say aides go out and deny that the president was trying to do exactly what they had cooked up for him to do behind the scenes, except that in this case, What Morris had cooked up for him to do behind the scenes might very well have been hid from other White House aides because he was such a behind-the-scenes player at the White House that many of the aides didn't know what he was up to and that he had such a call on the president's attention and on his strategy. Let's go back to the president. We hear so many loud and angry voices in America today 
whose sole goal seems to be to try to keep some people as paranoid as possible and the rest of us all torn up and upset with each other. Mr. Clinton said in a speech to the American Association of Community Colleges in Minneapolis before flying to Iowa for a conference on rural America. They spread hate, said the president. They leave the impression that by their very words, that violence is acceptable. You ought to see, Mr. Clinton continued, I'm sure you are now seeing the reports of some things that are regularly said over the airwaves in America today. Well, people like that who want to share our freedoms must know that their bitter words can have consequences and that freedom has ensured in this country for more than two centuries because it was coupled with an enormous sense of responsibility. Now, this sense of responsibility is fascinating, and it touches on one of my favorite theories of restraint. But what I like about it is the idea that this great freedom of speech doesn't just allow you to say any old thing, that there are obligations to the freedoms that Americans enjoy. And so just like the Second Amendment uh, obligates you to perform in a responsible manner, that the Second Amendment doesn't only guarantees you the right to ownership, uh, but also confers upon you a duty to exercise that ownership in a responsible manner, there is a First Amendment analog to that or equivalent of that. And that this is what the president was calling out, was that for people to live up to their patriotic duty in acting responsibly. This was a way in which the president could respond and not only put his opponents in a defensive corner, but also try to link this to a more sort of patriotic message, to a core value of the American story. When they talk about hatred, said the president, we must stand against them. When they talk of violence, we must stand against them. When they say things that are irresistible, that may have egregious consequences, we must call them on it. The exercise of their freedom of speech makes our silence all the more unforgivable. Now, what's fun about this is the president, as Purdom points out, never puts a noun to the pronoun. And what he's doing there, of course, is allowing people to fill in the blank with whoever they would like, and also hoping against hope that those who feel put upon by what the president said will squawk per the Morris plan. And when they squawk and complain about the president associating them with this violence, they will, by stepping up in the context, once the president has prepared the context for this, they will, by stepping up, associate themselves with the extremism that caused the violence. The president said, our country, our future, our way of life is at stake. I never want to look into the faces of another set of family members like I saw yesterday. And you can help stop it. He was referring yesterday, of course, to the speech uh, when he was in Oklahoma City. This, of course, um, excited the ire and umbrage of people like Rush Limbaugh, who said on his radio show that it would be irresponsible and vacuous to suggest that debate heard on radio contributed to the events in Oklahoma City. Limbaugh asserted that liberals intended to use the bombing, quote, for their own gain and added, quote, the insinuations being made are irresponsible and are going to have a chilling effect on legitimate discussion. I believe the people who have been ranting and raving about starving schoolchildren calling those people involved in legitimate political dialogue extremists are, in fact, promoters of paranoia and purveyors of hate and divisiveness, Limbaugh said. I'm glad to see the president speak out against them, and anyone who uses Oklahoma City for political purposes should incur the wrath of the American people and be voted out of the office. Uh, Limbaugh was trying to be cute there, of course, talking about things that liberals say and claiming that's extreme. But he had clearly, along with others, been put on the defensive. Bill Clinton, in his memoirs, wrote, The haters and extremists didn't go away, but they were on the defensive and for the rest of my term, would never quite regain the position that they enjoyed after Timothy McVeigh took the demonization of government beyond the limits of humanity. One thing that's just striking here is that this 
conversation in 1995 about the outer limits of the division that we see in America is still a conversation that's with us today, that the corrosive effects of the way we think about each other is still with us and, in fact, has gotten uglier. The 1995 attack in Oklahoma City was about the time the Pew uh, Research Center started polling Americans about their political attitudes. They found that, li- that liberals and conservatives were about 15 points apart when you ask them about fundamental American questions about the nature of health care and the rights and freedoms of being an American and basic questions about American values. Parties were about 15 points apart. They are now 30 points apart. So voters don't just have more intense feelings about policies. They have a more intense view about the people in the other party. Partisans have increased their antipathy towards the other party in 1994, right before this bombing. Fewer than 20 percent in both parties viewed the opposition party as very members of the opposition party as very unfavorable. Now, 44 percent of Democrats have a very unfavorable opinion of the GOP. So it's doubled since then. The number of Republicans feeling uh, that they have a very unfavorable view of Democrats has doubled as well. So we're also less likely to approve that our children marrying uh, other people from the other party. So the partisanship in America has gotten even worse in the period since Bill Clinton worried about it in the wake of the Oklahoma City bombing. In his 1996 State of the Union speech the next year, the president introduced a man named Richard Dean, a Vietnam veteran who had worked at the Oklahoma City Federal Building and who re-entered the building four times to rescue people after the building blew up. Republicans, Democrats, they all stood to applaud. And then Bill Clinton went on. But Richard Dean's story doesn't end there. This last November, he was forced out of his office when the government shut down. And the second time the government shut down, he continued helping Social Security recipients, but he was working without pay. On behalf of Richard Dean and his family and all the other people who are out there working every day, doing a good job for the American people, I challenge all of you in this chamber, let never, ever, Shut the federal government down again. Eight months after the bombing, Bill Clinton was still framing the opposition, using the anti-government message against Republicans. And yet this was also a speech in which Bill Clinton also declared the era of big government is over. So there it was, the message Bill Clinton had tried to offer in that shambling press conference on the 17th of April, when he was a wounded president. That message of being in the sensible center, the common ground, Neither the extremism of the right nor the old big government liberalism of the left. It would come to be called triangulation. It would lead President Clinton to an election victory in 1996, a year after the bombing in Oklahoma City. And that would lead to a second term in office. A trajectory, many believe, would not have been possible had President Clinton not met the moment in the aftermath of the bombing of Oklahoma City. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. The executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. And thanks also to Claire Fahey of CBS This Morning and Dustin Gervais at CBS Radio, who hooks us up here with a studio in which we can record. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. 